Well, it is once again a real pleasure to be back amongst you. Um, though I am not currently serving amongst the eldership of our church, I think I can speak for them insofar as I can say that they are very much giving themselves to serve you. And I do know for a fact that um, I don't think a prayer meeting has gone by where we have not been lifting you up in our prayers to God. And I hope that you're doing the same for us as well, because we're all in need of the grace of God, aren't we? So if you'd open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. I thought it would be appropriate in the opportunities that I have to uh, speak to you tonight, and um, God willing, in uh, some of the upcoming Lord's Day evenings as well, if we would look at some of the passages in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 having to do with the coming of our Lord. Obviously, this is an appropriate uh, subject for this season, but even more than that, I thought about the fact that when we are going through trials and difficulties, when we face challenges, there really is nothing more important to us than to set our eyes on Jesus. In fact, frankly, it doesn't matter what we're going through. We could be going through times of great prosperity. We could be going through times where everything is going well. In fact, those can be some of the most dangerous times of our lives spiritually. There is never a time when we don't need, above all else, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so these are passages that help us to do that. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through verse 33, which will be the focus of our sermon for tonight. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now, before I begin reading, let me just say this, because the first four words are in the sixth month. And so we have to know, in the sixth month of what? Well, interestingly enough, it's the sixth month of somebody's pregnancy, which is an interesting way to mark time, isn't it? Uh, Because we're about to read about a message brought by the angel Gabriel. But Gabriel has already appeared earlier in Luke chapter 1. He has appeared to a priest uh, named Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, an older couple, never had any children, but to announce to them that by God's grace and God's power, they are going to have a son. He's going to be named John, and he will become the person that we know as John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. So now as we read in the sixth month, it means in the sixth month of old Elizabeth's pregnancy with John. So Luke 1, 26, in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, let's pray and ask for God the Holy Spirit to assist us now as we seek to open up his word and apply it to our lives. Lord, in a sense, these words are so familiar to us that they're dangerously familiar. We can read by them and imagine charming Christmas scenes in our minds and completely miss the point. So please, Lord, please let us not do that. Lord, whether we're very familiar with these words or whether perhaps for someone in this room this is the first time they've ever heard this, we pray that you would come that you would come and make yourself known in this place, that you would come and illuminate us, that you would open our eyes that have been so blinded by our sins so that we might behold wondrous things in your word. And Lord, we pray particularly that since this passage is about the coming of your son Jesus, that you would show us your son, that you would draw us to him as it were magnetically, so that willingly, joyfully, gladly, eagerly, we would come to him, whether it's for the first time in our lives for salvation or, Lord, for the thousandth time to find fresh grace. And we pray that Jesus would meet with us in this text that he would indeed be with his church and that you would do great things amongst us. Indeed, Lord, we pray that if there's anyone amongst us who is not yet born again, that you would save that person, that Christ would come to him or to her. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the English novelist wrote at the very beginning of A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. And you know, maybe that could be a description of how how you're feeling about things that are going on around you right now. Maybe you're looking perhaps at the national scene and what you read about in the news, and it it echoes with you that, yes, you could say this is perhaps the worst of times, or perhaps things going on in your own personal life or your family or as a church. You are saying that there are senses in which these are hard times. You are facing challenges. And yet, you know, if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are also able to say that though these may be bad times in some respects, in other respects, you can also say these are good times. These are good times. Not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. And, you know, I imagine that there were ways in which the Jewish people, God's beloved Israel, at the time that this text describes, were saying, these are the worst of times. Because Israel, you talk about difficult political situations, they were dominated by an oppressive, tyrannical empire 
that was controlled by people who did not worship and serve the true God. They suffered, the godly suffered, because all around them, so many of the people were being influenced by false teachers who would give to people. Well, think of, think of the legalism of the Pharisees. Think of the false teachings of the Sadducees who denied cardinal doctrines of the Bible. And so many of the people were not living for the Lord. It was a dark time for Israel. And yet, there is also a sense that though it was the worst of times, it was the best of times. Because, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. It was the best of times. It was the fullness of times. It was the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of the people. And why? Why? Because of some great event that people were watching and listening to and hearing about in the media of the day? No. Because of a child who was born, unknown to most people. A child who would grow up to be the Savior. And as we look at this text, what it's saying to us is that God's Son became Mary's human Son to reign forever as the promised King. And that, my friends, calls us to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves and to be ruled by the word of this King. But it also calls us to hope. It calls us to hope. So that no matter how bad things may be and whatever your circumstances are, if we have this great person, if he belongs to us and we belong to him, all is well. All is well. So let's open the text today. We see in this text, first of all, the announcement of grace, and then second of all, later in the text, the arrival of grace. First of all, the announcement of grace by God's angel in verses 26 through 29. As we look at this text and and read through it, one of the first things that leaps off the page to us is that this grace that's being announced is God's grace to the lowly. It's his grace to the lowly. Look at the text again. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we're so familiar with the Christmas story, aren't we? We're thinking, well, of course. Where else would it happen? It's got to be Galilee and Nazareth. But do you you understand that, that Galilee was nowhere special? This was not some center of power. This this was certainly not the great imperial Rome that the angel was being sent to. This was not some palace where a great king was being born. This was way out yonder, what we today would call flyover country. This is a place that, that many people would never have been to or heard of or cared about. And in fact, it actually gets worse than that because it's Nazareth. You say, well, what's wrong with Nazareth? Well, do you know in John 1, verses 45 to 46, it tells us that when Philip found Nathanael 
and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what Nathanael said? Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was not the kind of place that if you were from there, you advertised it to people. It was embarrassing to be from Nazareth. The town had a poor reputation. And yet, God sends his angel to this place. And it is at this place that the person is residing who is going to be the mother of our Lord. What is God doing? He is showing his grace to the lowly. And it's not just a lowly place, it's a lowly house. The text continues that in verse 27, the angel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now you may say, well, that's not a lowly house, that's, that's the house of the king, right? I mean, David the king. But, but listen, we need to remember where we are in biblical history. It has been more than 500 years when this happens. More than 500 years had passed since a son of David had sat on the throne. The house of David hadn't reigned for centuries. The house of David, Isaiah 11.1, compares it to a stump. It was like a tree that once had grown up and spread its branches and become a powerful monarchy. And then because of its sins, God cut the tree down. And now it's just a stump in the ground taking up space. To come to the house of David now, when Gabriel did, is not to come to some powerful monarchy, but to come to something that had long since fallen into decline, into decay. It was a lowly house. And indeed, he comes to a lowly person. The verse 27 continues, And the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, in fact, earlier in verse 27, as I just read, it says she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, Bible scholars tell us that at this point in time, a young woman was typically betrothed in her early teens. Okay, so to put it in a modern framework, the angel Gabriel is going to announce the birth of the Messiah to a junior high girl. Okay, this is not a mover and a shaker. Okay, this is not some great important person. This is a young woman, maybe she's 13 years old. And he goes to her. It just doesn't make any sense. In fact, she knows it doesn't make any sense. You have to appreciate Mary's response. Because when the angel comes to her, verse 28, and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. It says she was greatly troubled at the saying. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, Gabriel's statement has been misinterpreted in many ways. This is actually the basis upon which Roman Catholics pray, Hail Mary, full of grace. 
But when you look at what this text actually says and study it in the original language, when it says, O favored one, it's not saying that Mary is just full of grace that she can share with other people. So you can go to Mary and she'll show you grace and help you with your problems. When he says, Greetings, O favored one, literally what it means is, Greetings, woman who has received grace. And so he's coming to her and he's saying, Mary, God is showing you grace. He's going to give you a blessing that you don't deserve. He's going to give you grace. Now, Mary believed in God's grace. As we can see, if we read on in this chapter, she was a woman of faith. But you don't send an angel just to everybody who's going to get grace from God. And it's really striking when he shows up and announces that he has a special message for her, a special grace from her. How does she respond? She doesn't say, I knew it. I knew it. I knew I was special. I knew God was going to use me to change the world. No, she's like, what are you talking about? She's, she's stunned. It doesn't make any sense to her. And in a sense, on a human level, it doesn't make any sense. She was a nobody. She was just an ordinary girl. And yet it was to her that this angel comes and makes the announcement that you, Mary, you will be the mother of the Christ. Now, what is God doing here? I mean, God doesn't do anything by accident. God shapes and crafts and designs not just his goals, but how he gets there. The means that he uses are all ways that he teaches us who he is and how he works. So what is God showing us in how he's working here? Well, I think one thing he's saying to us is this. Stop judging my ways by man's standards. I mean, just think about it. If, if we had been God's public relations manager and said, okay, okay, we know Christ is coming. We got to do this big, right? We got to set this up because this is the big event of history. And so let's see, what are we going to involve? Well, this is, we're going to have to get in the big names, we got to get the big names in here, the people that everybody will recognize. Because when the big names are there, that's when people know that God's at work, right? And let's see, what can we do? We need to bring in big numbers of people. And we'll just have huge crowds there, large gathering of people. That always impresses people, right? Because when you see a big crowd, that shows that God's there and he's doing something. And, okay, big names, big crowd. Ah, we have to have big money, too. There's got to be a lot of money involved in this because people look at that and say, wow, God's blessing this. God's blessing this. There's, there's just a lot of money involved. It's going to be a big show, right? And God says, that disgusts me. God says, I'm not going to do anything like that. The things that man highly esteem are an abomination to God. God says, I'm going to do everything exactly the opposite of the way you think I'm going to work. And he does it to say to us, stop judging my ways by your wisdom and your standards, O oh man. 
My ways are different than your ways. My ways are to go to the lowly. My ways are to work through the weak. My ways are to take the poor and to use them to overcome the rich. To take those who have nothing in themselves and to use them to enrich many. My ways are not your ways. And therefore, you need to stop judging what I'm doing by how things look according to the flesh. Don't judge God's ways by man's standards. If we did that, we would miss the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God may be more at work in something that involves a bunch of nobodies who are meeting together nowhere special and who don't have much money And yet that might be where God is really accomplishing something while the world walks right past it on their way to the big show. That's how our God is. And we know it because that's the way Jesus came. And yet what's happening here is indeed God's grace. What's happening here, despite the outward appearance of what what people can see, is truly the fulfillment of God's promises. And it it even comes out in the verses that I just read. So look back at verse 26. What is the name of this angel? You say, Gabriel, dummy, you just read it, right? Yeah, everybody knows that. But do you realize this is not the first time in the Bible that Gabriel has shown up? And I'm not talking about earlier in Luke chapter 1. It was Gabriel that God sent to Daniel way, way back in the Old Testament. You can read about it in uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 16. Or again in Daniel 9, verse 21, where Daniel records, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, do you think that it's just a coincidence that the same angel that God sent to Daniel just happens to be the same angel that God sends to announce the coming of Jesus Christ? Does God not have any other angels he can send? What is God signaling here? He's signaling to us that the promises that God made to the prophet Daniel are coming true. For example, in Daniel 9.24, where God announces that he, in his timetable, has a time to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's come true. Jesus has come. Jesus has lived the perfect life. Jesus died upon the cross for sinners. And now Jesus can put an end to your sin. He can take away your guilt. He can make you right with God because of what he's done. The ancient promise is coming true. It has come true. Or we read on. The angel Gabriel, verse 26, was sent from God to the city of Galilee, right? And we say, well, Galilee, that's, that's no place. In fact, um, later in the Gospel of John, we can read about how people stumbled over the fact that Jesus was from Galilee. 
They said, does any prophet come from Galilee? But do you realize that this is exactly what God said was going to happen? Because in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it speaks of Galilee of the nations. And then it says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that's exactly the prophecy that Matthew quotes to tell us about how when Jesus went out preaching the gospel in Galilee, God's promises were being fulfilled. You see, God's promise of righteousness has come. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. He's made atonement for sin. God's promise of light has come. Jesus, the light of the world, has come preaching the gospel. Furthermore, the promise of the kingdom. That should be fairly obvious when it talks about David's house. Because it was to David, David the king, who when he wanted to build a house for the Lord, the Lord said, well, I'll just read it to you in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 12. The Lord will make you, David, a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And now the king has come, as we'll talk about in more detail in just a few more minutes. So God's promises are coming true. In fact, there is a promise of salvation for the weak. That's implied in the angel's words to Mary. In verse 28, when he says, the Lord is with you, that doesn't just mean that God is with you to bring you comfort and things like that. It means that God is here to keep his promises and to save you. These are the exact words that an angel said to a man named Gideon in Judges 6, 12. Where it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I almost have to laugh every time I read that statement. Because do you remember where Gideon was when the angel said that to him? He was hiding. He was threshing out the harvest in a wine press in hopes that nobody would see him. Because their country had been overtaken by foreigners who were oppressing them and stealing their food. And so here is he's hiding, threshing out the harvest, hoping that nobody's going to catch him and take his food. And the angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. In other words, Gideon, you may be a fearful man, but God is going to work through you to bring salvation to his people. And here's this angel coming to Mary and saying, Mary, you might just be a, a junior high age girl who nobody knows and recognizes anything special, but God is going to work through you to bring salvation. By the way, that should remind us that we should never think that just because of our age or our gender, whether we're really young or really old or male or female, that God can't use us to bring blessing into this world. Because God uses the lowly. 
He uses the lowly. And this says to us that we should believe God's promises even when things look bad. We should believe God's promises even when all seems lost. Even when we look around at our circumstances and says, my dreams have crumbled like a sandcastle before the waves of the ocean. Even when all the things that we had thought were going to happen and and that we had invested ourselves in, now they're just coming apart. We should believe God's promises because God has proven that he will keep his promises even in the darkest of times because he kept his promise by sending his son, Jesus. And in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. You know, the, the Puritans went through some very, very dark times. And sometimes when we look at what's going on in our nation and, and we just feel like darkness is falling across our land, And we get so discouraged. It's helpful to look back at history, to be reminded of how the Puritans, when when the king of England, who had been excluded from his own nation for a time, was brought back in 1660 to England. And he'd made many promises about how he would favor Reformed Christianity. But when he came back, he brought with him into power the leaders of the Church of England, And it turned out to be a time of fierce persecution. And the Puritans were forced out of their pulpits. They were forced out of public life. In Scotland, the Covenanters went through a time of brutal persecution. It was during this period of time that they experienced what they later called the killing times, when many of them were slaughtered. It was a very, very dark time. But listen to what John Howe, one of those later Puritans, said in a sermon he preached in 1678. He said, he gave us this counsel, though it may be we are to suffer hard and grievous things in the meanwhile, he said, we should compose ourselves and enter upon that state of suffering very cheerfully to wait patiently and pray earnestly. And I think those, those are key words. Wait patiently and pray earnestly. How said that if you do that, if you will wait patiently in dark times and pray earnestly, he said you are already beginning to experience a revival in your own soul. You are already tasting the harvest of spiritual blessing that God will bring at some point in the future. And he also reminded us that Jesus said that if God's children ask him for the Holy Spirit, he will surely give it. The work of the Holy Spirit to renew you, to renew your church, to renew people across the world is for the asking because God keeps his promises. So my friends, I say to you, wait patiently and pray earnestly because God's son in fulfillment of all God's promises 
has become Mary's human son. He has come. He has done what God said he would do. And he has come to reign forever as the promised king. And therefore, we need to humble ourselves. We need to allow his word to rule our thinking and our behavior so that we become a people of enduring hope. Now, that's the announcement of grace by God's angel. Let's look secondly at the arrival of grace in God's Son. The arrival of grace in God's Son. And that's in verses 30 to 33. The angel goes on and says to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for if you found favor, or it could be translated grace, with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, if God permits, maybe another uh, Sunday night of this month, we'll come back to this text and some others in this passage and look at the meaning of the virgin birth and how Jesus is Emmanuel. But for now, let's just pass by that and look at the next verse. The angel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. What he's saying to us here, first of all, is the majesty of God's Son. The majesty of God's Son. He is the Son of the Most High. Now, what does that mean? Well, somebody might say that, well, it really doesn't mean anything that spectacular. I mean, after all, uh, Jesus says in Luke 6.35 that um, you will be sons of the Most High if you love people and, and do that sort of thing. And so, you know, God has many children. He has many sons and daughters. And so Jesus is one of God's sons and daughters. Um, he's a child of God. Well, dear friends, we have to look at the way the Bible uses this expression, the Son of the Most High, and how it applies to Jesus, not just to us. And when the Bible talks about Jesus being the Son of God, it doesn't just mean that he has a relationship with God the way we have a relationship with God. We can see that very clearly later in the Gospel of Luke. If you'd flip over to chapter 8, if you'd flip over to chapter 8 and verse 28, because we see this same title used of Christ in an encounter that he has with a man who has the peculiar name of Legion. Now, you remember this story, perhaps. The Lord Jesus encounters a man who is uncontrollable. And he, it's not just that he has a mental problem. This man is being controlled by demons. And he is he's tormented on the inside. He lives amongst the tombs. This is an evil, frightening man. They've tried to deal with him. They've, they've brought in force. They, they shackled him with chains. They put a guard over him. And he just ripped the chains apart. This man is, is, is being dominated by a supernatural power. He can't be controlled. And I don't know what happened to the man who was guarding him, <laughs> but I hope he ran away. 
This, this was a, a frightening, evil man. But when Jesus meets him, this man who is full of evil, in fact, he's got so many demons or evil spirits inside of him that he's called legion. Do you know what a legion is? It's a unit of the Roman Imperial Armed Forces. It consisted of between four and 6,000 men. There are thousands of demons inhabiting this one man. This man is concentrated evil. But when he meets Jesus, he doesn't rush at Jesus and attack him. He falls down on the ground. Look at what happens in Luke 8, verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Do you see it? Son of the Most High God. When this phrase is used of Jesus, this is not just saying he's a child of God. He's not just a man. In fact, he's not just an angel. He is the Lord. He is the one before whom an army of demons falls down and cowers and begs for mercy. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the one who created heaven and earth merely by speaking. We know this because earlier in Luke chapter 4, when the devil is tempting Jesus... He says something to him in his first temptation that should really strike us about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 3, it says, The devil said to him, remember Jesus was fasting, he was hungry. The devil said, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I must confess that though I have been tempted by the devil many times, he has never tempted me to turn a stone into bread. And if he did try and tempt me to do that, I would laugh, because it's absolutely impossible for me to turn a stone into bread. But this was a real temptation for Jesus. If you are the Son of God, What does that tell us about what it means for him to be the son of God? It means that he has the power merely by his will, just by speaking like he did to the storm. He spoke and the storm was quieted. Jesus has the power to change something from one chemical substance, an an inanimate mineral, into an entirely different chemical substance that is ordinarily produced organically, kind of like turning water into wine. Who can do something like that? I'll tell you who. The God who created the universe by speaking. Jesus is God the Son. He is, as it says in the Gospel of John, the only begotten Son of God. He's not an adopted Son, the way we're God's adopted children. He is begotten in the Father's own nature. He shares the very omnipotence of God over heaven and earth. 
Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the King over all the angels. He is the one whom, when he comes into the world, God says to his angels, worship him. This is the majesty of the person who has come into the world. And he has come to give us grace. Now, one thing that this says to us is that when we are dealing with Jesus, whether it's personally or as a gathered church, that we should have no pride in his presence. There is no place in the presence of this exalted, glorious, world-creating Son for any human pride for any of us to get up on our little stepladder and say, I'm, I'm a step above you. There is no place for that. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he was talking about Jesus? He said, after me there is coming one, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, you just think about that. These people would walk through dirt roads with sandals on. And for somebody to to kneel down and to take off somebody's sandal at the end of the day, that's a disgusting job. That's a humiliating job. That's the kind of job that... You know, whatever kind of pecking order you have, and you know, every, every workplace has its pecking order, right? That's the kind of job that it gets kicked all the way down. The lowest guy, you go do that. That's a job that nobody wants to do. That's a job fitting for the lowest slave. But John says, I'm not worthy to take Jesus' sandals off his dirty feet at the end of the day. I don't deserve to do that. He had an insight into who he was dealing with that we often forget. Is it not the case that we domesticate Jesus? That we forget that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is the son of the most high God, Sometimes we we can become so arrogant, and we don't even know it. And we we can become so offended at other people because they don't give me the honor that I deserve. When in fact, if I just saw myself as I truly stand in relation to Jesus Christ, I'd be saying, I don't deserve to take out the trash in the church, much less to receive some honor. If we just see Jesus for who he is, we should be overwhelmed at his grace to us. That this high and lofty king whom the angels worship would be willing to come and become a man like us. That he'd be willing to clothe himself in human flesh and take on even a human mind and a human soul to go through human life with human experiences. Why? For us. So that he could save us from our sins. 
this incredibly glorious, majestic Son of God. And if we just see who He is, instead of, instead of squabbling and, and quarreling and fighting like children playing King of the Hill, we would be on our faces before the true King. And that's where we belong. And that's the place of blessing. That's the place of blessing. That's the place of grace. Because he came to serve as our king. He came to serve as our king. That's what the angel said. The angel said in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Jesus came to be our king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a great irony. Our hearts, at least insofar as they still have remaining sin, which we all still have remaining sin, and if you're not saved by Jesus, sin reigns over you. It rules you. Our hearts in that sinfulness say, I will have no king. And so to the heart that is insofar as sin is still there, the essence of that sin says, you may have come to be a king, Jesus, but I don't want you to be a king. Paul says that the mindset of the flesh is enmity towards God, for it will not submit to the law of God, nor can it do so. Romans 8, verse 7. In other words, when we meet Jesus and we discover that he's come to be the king, we think, oh great, somebody else to tell us what to do. But dear friends... This is exactly what we need. We desperately need a king. Because without a king, we are like sheep without a shepherd. We're harassed. We're helpless. We're wandering about. We're destroying ourselves. We're destroying each other. We need a king. We were made for a king. But, but not, not to bow down to some mere man or woman. The whole celebrity culture in our country is just ridiculous, isn't it? The way we enslave ourselves to somebody just because he's got money or a car or something like that. But even that is an echo of what we were made for. We were made to bow down and to surrender our lives to a king, but not to a mere man, to the man who is also the son of God, to the one who comes to rule us in grace, to the one who comes to set us free. You know, if, if you study, you study the kingdom of David in places like 2 Samuel chapter 8, and you look at what David actually did as king, what you can see is that there are two basic things. Number one, he conquered the enemies of Israel so that they would not oppress them. And number two, he ruled the people of God in righteousness and justice so that they would treat each other and honor God the way that they should. 
And that's exactly why Jesus came. In fact, we can see it here in this same chapter. A little bit later in it, in Luke chapter 1, in verses 67 and following, when Zechariah, the father of John, is, his mouth is opened, he's enabled by the Holy Spirit to prophesy, or prophesy, and he says in verse 68 and 69 that he's praising God because, as he puts it, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, which is a way of saying he's raised up a powerful leader out of the family of David. Why is that? What is that powerful leader to do? Well, after Zechariah celebrates how God is keeping his ancient promises to Abraham, look at what he says in verse 74 of Luke 1. He says that God has raised up this king in the line of David, verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Why did Jesus come as king? He came to save us from the powers of evil that would dominate us and prevent us from fulfilling our destiny. And he came so that by ruling over us, by ruling over us, we would be enabled to serve and worship God and to live lives where we do what's right, where we treat each other rightly. And so, my friends, I I need to present to you this person. I present to you King Jesus. And he has come to be your king. He has come to rule over you. He has come to give you commandments for you to follow. And he has come to sweep away the rebellion that, that... pollutes our hearts and ruins our lives so that you become somebody who freed from powers that you are not able to free yourself from, the power of the devil, you are empowered to live in righteousness. This is the king of grace. And you may say, but but wait a minute, I, I thought Jesus came to die on the cross so that our sins would be forgiven. Well, yes, yes, indeed. But you need to realize that the office or commission that was given to our Savior from his Father is not that simple. It's a threefold office. So, yes, he is a priest to, by his sacrifice on the cross, pay for our sins so that we would be accepted by God, welcomed into his family on earth, and then lifted up into his family in heaven one day. But that's not all that he came to do. Jesus also came as a prophet to teach us and show us what is true through his word. But he also came as a king. And you can't have Jesus the priest without Jesus the King. You can't have a Savior without also having a Lord. And my friends, if there is any place where Jesus is especially jealous of his crown rights as King, it is in his church. Jesus will let no other person be King in his church. 
And it is precisely there that every single one of us who are members of his church need to stop and examine ourselves, isn't it? Because if we would be honest with ourselves, if we would be honest with ourselves in the secret places of our hearts, we would all secretly deem ourselves to be king in his church. If only the people of the church would do things the way that I see they need to be done. If only they would listen to me. If only they would honor me the way I deserve to be honored. Give me the recognition that I should have. Oh, my friends, we're not the king of the church. And it would be disastrous if we were. What Jesus has done is he has set forth in his word the way he wants his church to be run. And these are words of grace. These are words of love. When Jesus commands his church, this is the way your worship is to be. When he commands his church, this is my plan for evangelizing the world. When he commands his church, this is the way authority should function within the church. These are the offices of the church. This is who is qualified for them. These are the kinds of people. These are the functions that they are to follow. Jesus is not speaking as a consultant. He's speaking as the king. And the church can only flourish when it follows the way of the king. And dear friends, this is the king of love. This is the king who doesn't need us, but this is the king who loves us. This is the king, the son of the most high God, who had everything because he has everything in himself. All happiness, all glory, and all honor already exist within his holy divine nature. He didn't come to earth because he lost something that he needed. He came to earth because we lost something that we needed. We lost him. And it is our great privilege and joy as the church of Jesus Christ to have him as our king. I know what I'm saying to you is radically countercultural. We as Americans in particular have no tolerance for kings. But you need to be ruled, and not by me or any other mere man. You need to be ruled by the living God. And God has sent his son, Jesus, to be the mediator of that kingdom. And so my challenge for you tonight is, is this Christ, this Christ who is announced by Gabriel, this Christ who is born of Mary, this Christ who in some ways is so familiar to us through the Christmas story, is this Christ operating and functioning in your life as your king? First of all, that's a question on a very fundamental level of whose kingdom are you in? Because if you're not in the kingdom of Christ, even though you may be thinking that you are simply doing what you want to do, in point of fact, the Bible says that you are in the kingdom of the devil and you are a slave of your sins. But Jesus has come to set slaves, to set slaves free. Jesus has come as the Savior King. 
And if all that I've been saying to you this evening has been foreign to your experience, and maybe you say, well, you know, I, I could kind of go for Jesus as, as a Savior, but as a King, I don't know. Let me say to you that Jesus is calling you to Himself even now through this gospel that I'm preaching. And He is saying to you, come to me and surrender. You say, wait a minute, surrender is something that an enemy does when he's been conquered. That's right. You have been an enemy of God. Every time you have sinned against him and lived for yourself, you have been an enemy of God, and it's time to surrender to the king. But he'll forgive you, and he'll welcome you. And for those of us who are in the kingdom of Christ... For those of us who belong to Jesus, and for us, dear friends, it is incumbent upon us to examine ourselves and to say, am I living in a way that really honors him as my king? And am I treating other people in the church as the fellow servants of the king? Or am I starting to slide back into that old way of trying to be the king, even if it's just within the secret places of my own heart? And if that's the case for you, my friend, then I would say to you, number one, Jesus will allow no other king amongst his people. He's jealous of his kingship because it is for the glory of his Father. And number two, Jesus is sweetly forgiving. Listen, if Jesus was willing to forgive those who, when they were wholehearted enemies of God, came to him and bowed down and surrendered, how much more is he willing to forgive and bless those who are God's children, those who have been already cloaked in his righteousness, those who are in his kingdom. And I dare say that every single one of us needs to grow in our submission to this king and to say, Lord Jesus, I do submit to you, but help me in my unsubmission. Help me, Lord, to honor you as king. I tell you the truth. There is no other way to honor our God and to have his joy in our hearts than by submitting to him to rule over us. Let's pray.